1: Welcome to today's New Books in Education, one of the podcast channels in New Books Network. This is your host, Peng Fei Zhao, speaking to you from Bloomington, Indiana. Today, I will be talking with Ali Michael on her book, Raising Race Questions Whiteness and Inquiry in Education. According to a 2014 report by the National Center for Education Statistics, White teachers comprise over 85% of the K-12 teaching force in the United States. Whereas, as of 2011, 52% of the public school students were white students, 16% black students, 24% Hispanic students, and 5% Asian and Pacific Islander students. And finally, 1% American Indian and Alaska Native students. In a lot of the urban areas, white teachers are teaching classes in which a majority of the students are non-white. In such a context, how is the issue of race addressed in American schools? How do white teachers connect to their students of color? Do teachers bring any unexamined racial biases into their classrooms? Or simply, is it necessary to raise race questions? In Ali Michael's book, Raising Race Questions, she worked with a group of white teachers to inquire about race and schooling. She has masterfully shown to us how teachers can become more racially competent through asking difficult questions, building inquiry groups, and working on personal and interpersonal level reflections. The book offers insights and inspirations to not only teachers, but also common citizens who care about equity, inclusion, and social justice. All right, now let's turn to Ali the author of Raising Race Questions. Hello, Ali. Thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. You're welcome, Pingfei. It's a pleasure. Could you please first introduce yourself to our audience and maybe also why are you so interested in the topic of race and schooling? Sure. My name is
0: Ali Michael, and I'm the director of the Race Institute for K-12 Educators. And the Race Institute is an organization that I started with a multiracial team of colleagues to create a space for teachers to do the in-depth and personal work of racial identity development. We know that having a positive racial identity for students supports both academic and social success. And we believe it's the job of teachers to support students in positive racial identity development processes But we also know that it's really hard to support somebody else in their own identity development process if you yourself don't have a strong, positive racial identity. So our goal is to support teachers to build their own racial identity in a positive way. And we believe that that takes time. So when we do short, one-off PDs in schools, even though those are valuable, they're often not places where teachers grow in their own identity development because they These trainings are short; they're in front of their colleagues in front of their bosses, and they they don't have the space they need to really dig into their own biases um their own early socialization and to unpack what they've learned and then to relearn new things and so that's what the the race institute does it's the race institute for k twelve educators and our our other mission is to make the research on race and education more accessible to teachers. And when we say accessible, we mean not only taking it out of journals and places where it's either hard to read or you can't even get to it because you have to belong to a university to access it, um, but also accessible in terms of of, of kind of being emotionally successful, that it really – to read the research on race and education and think about changing one's practice – Often is an emotional exercise, and sometimes people get blocked, um, particularly white people. And so, we want to create spaces for people to assimilate and learn that information and then um, to make changes in their classroom and to get through some of the emotional barriers that make it hard to do that.
1: I, I was just going to ask if the book Raising Race Questions is part of this effort to make research more accessible for teachers.
0: Absolutely. Um, the the book, Raising Race Questions, um, is essentially the foundation of the Institute. And so the framing concepts that we use in the Institute really come directly from the book. Um, the idea that students need to have a positive racial identity and therefore so do teachers, teachers, um, The idea that a multicultural curriculum is not sufficient for building an anti-racist classroom. That comes from the book, and that's one of our guiding principles in the workshop. And then this other idea, um, two more, one that racial competence can be learned, that it's not, that racial competence is nobody's born with it. That if you're good at talking about race and thinking um, strategically about working against racism, it's because you've had practice, not because you were born with it. And then um, our first guiding principle at the, in the book and in the Institute, which is that we do this work, this anti-racism work in the pursuit of wholeness. And this is the idea that essentially racism fractures us. It fractures us as individuals. It fractures our classrooms and our communities. And we are in this work seeking wholeness that would be there if it weren't for the, the fractures that racism creates. And the reason I want to be so explicit about this as a framing concept is that I think so often when we come to conversations about racism, everybody assumes that, okay, I mean, for white people, this conversation is going to make me feel guilty. For people of color, this conversation is going to make me feel sad or angry. And we kind of um, all assume that this is going to be an uncomfortable, frustrating process. And I think that if we reframe the goal of the conversation as one that where the intention is to to reach a wholeness of community and of self that we that we would have were it not for racism, it doesn't necessarily take some of the pain and anger and sadness and guilt out of the conversation, but it helps people realize that that's just a stage we're moving through towards a vision that's much greater. Um, and that, you know, really the vision of wholeness is the vision of beloved community that Martin Luther King had and that bell hooks talks about where we all have one another's backs and where I show up and work against racism as a white person and, and, and men are going to show up and work against sexism and cisgender folks are going to, uh, stand up against transphobia and straight folks are going to stand up against homophobia. And it's it's like, we, we all have each other's backs. Um, that's the beloved community. That's the wholeness that we're seeking. And so that really impacts how we talk about race and racism, how we interact with one another. Um, and then, you know, how we structure our programming, um, in terms of what the end goal is. The end goal is not just to make people feel bad. And that's not saying we might not feel bad in the course of the conversation, but it's in the service. Um, it's not our intention and it's in the service of something much bigger than any of us.
1: Well, wonderful. I mean, thank you for very concisely give us an overview of all the, um, guiding principles and, uh, also how you came to this ideas of, um, about wholeness. I think one of the examples you mentioned in the book, um, Really conveyed the message you talked you talked you mentioned just now very well, which is your decades long conversation with your father about race and racism, so I wonder if you would like to share that story with our audience and talk a little bit more about that
0: I've been talking with my dad for a long time about race and racism and you know, I mean, I should back up and share a little bit about my journey because I grew up in sure. a predominantly... yeah. Yeah, I, I skipped that part. I, uh, <laughs> I I grew up in a community that was almost all white. It was 99.8% white. It's a town called Mount Lebanon outside of Pittsburgh. And in my community and in my family, we really didn't talk about race. It was as if racism was something that impacted other people, but it had nothing to do with us in terms of how we understood it. And we didn't think about ourselves as white people. We just, I think, thought of ourselves as normal. Whiteness was not a category that I even knew we could identify with. And um, we, we did grow, we did think of ourselves as non-racist people. And what today, what I understand is that non-racism really isn't possible. Um, that racism is more like a moving walkway. And if you're standing still in a racist society you're moving along on the the moving walkway whether you intend to or not and that to be that you basically are moving in the direction of racism or against it but moving against it means walking the wrong way or maybe it's the right way but it's the opposite way of most people on the moving walkway um and so it, an anti-racism journey can be very um uncomfortable can be awkward you're moving against the tide of people um I grew up essentially thinking it's rude to talk about race. Racism has nothing to do with me. Racism really is overt and violent and perpetuated by individuals who are trying to uphold a racial hierarchy like the KKK. Um, And so there's no reason to think that I'm racist or that racism has something to do with me. Um, But, you know, I grew up in this almost all white community. And if you had asked me, if I grew up in a segregated community, I would have said no, because there were families of color who lived in my community. There were probably 10 or 20 families of color um, and they lived among us. We went to school together and I thought that meant we were integrated. But what I couldn't see was that in this town, we were almost all white and across across Pittsburgh, there was a town that was almost all black and we didn't mix, we didn't share tax base we didn't um, compete in sports, we didn't know one another. And in the silence that I grew up with, I also got lots of implicit messages. So we never went to the all black part of Pittsburgh. I tended to believe the suburban legends that I learned from other students about that part of the city thinking, it's dangerous, there's lots of gang warfare, I shouldn't go there. Um, And I I started to develop this this framework in my mind that, well, I guess white communities are safe and black communities are unsafe. And by extension, white people are safe and black people are unsafe. And I never went into Wilkinsburg or the Hill or black communities to see that, you know, in those communities, there are people who went to work, people who went to school, people who sat on their porches and talked to their neighbors and families and old people and little kids. And, you know, I, I had this kind of vision of it as just being basically gang warfare area, and um, but I, I didn't actually I didn't know real black people to counteract the stereotypes. I only really encountered black people in media, which often affirmed the stereotypes. And then there was nobody at home to say, actually, that idea is wrong because we we really weren't talking about it. There
1: wasn't there was nobody kind of trying to in your your community in your family nobody talking about it
0: yeah in my family or my community we you know so so all of this stuff was kind of happening unconsciously in my head and I was just putting putting things together um and Mm -hmm. then there were messages there were you know we had a neighbor who would uh, make jokes about stereotypically african-american names and so you know I would hear from my family don't those those are not funny jokes and we shouldn't repeat them but they that wasn't usually said in front of our neighbor so i didn't have any models for anti-racist action um, or for speaking up and saying something was wrong and i didn't even know i was missing anything i didn't know that i should be that racism really did impact my life until i went to college and i took a course on african american literature and the reason i took the course is because it was required i'm not sure i would have taken it if it hadn't been required Because I, even though I valued the material and I was interested in it, I didn't really feel like I belonged there. I feel like I basically felt like, well, this is a class for black students. This is not a class for me. Um, And it was also the first time I really had black classmates or a black professor. So I think I was also anxious about that. And it was in that class where I started to realize that there's actually there are skills that it is a skills based competency. Talking about race is it's not you know it's not like you can just kind of dive in the conversation. I had been socialized my whole life not to use racial terms, not to think um, in terms of, of race. And so I wasn't sure what terms to use or when. And if I tried to say black or white or Asian American or Latino or, or Native American, I would constantly second guess myself. Am I using the right term? Am I offending somebody? Um, and basically, I started putting all my energy towards not looking racist. That was kind of my, the goal that I,
1: I had in that <laughs> class. It, and essentially... Well, so you you had to do a lot of impression management, exactly, probably. Like, it, <laughs> exactly. It's,
0: it's my one window into understanding what stereotype threat feels like for people of color. You know, because it was just like, I was so concerned with how I look that I wasn't really, I, I was learning the content, but not as much as I could have been if I had were just focused on that and not focused on my yes. own, my own self image. <laughs> and so that's, that's my, um, that's the beginning of my journey. And there was at some point, um, I mean, it, in that class, I started to speak up. I started to realize uh I think somebody told me basically, if you say one thing in every class, go prepared to say one thing that will be enough to help you start pushing your comfort zone and expanding your comfort zone so you so that you're not so uncomfortable with this and it was through that class that I really started to grow grow the capacity to at least participate in this conversation and to realize that this is something I can get better at But also, it was in that class that I realized racism has impacted every day of my life and my ancestors' lives. Here, I thought racism had nothing to do with me. Racism had everything to do with the fact that I grew up in an all-white community, I mean, not only were there their policies that kept people of color out, but there were also individual level actions on the behalf of other white people in the community that kept it in all white space. There were banks that wouldn't give people of color mortgages to move into my community. There was even a law. Um, it wasn't a law. It was a court case, Millikan versus Bradley, that was decided the year before I was born. Uh, in ni- I think it was 1977. It might have been the year after I was born. I was born in 1978, but Milliken versus Bradley basically said that urban communities and suburban communities don't have to share a tax base. And what that meant was that, you know, these, the, the segregation, the urban, I mean, the, the racial segregation that had existed since, um, since World War II, essentially since just after World War II and the formation of the suburbs, was allowed to persist, that people of color, particularly black people had been kept out of the suburbs, but most people of color had been kept out of the suburbs, white people mostly suburbanized America, um, because they were the ones who had access to mortgages. And um, and so there was wealth in the suburbs that was not being shared with the cities, even though people in the suburbs used all of the structures um, uh, of the city, essentially right. for work. And, um, and this, this court case said, you don't have to share resources. And so you don't have to share your tax base. And so the school stayed segregated, and the resources stayed segregated. And this, this is all public policy that shaped my life. But I, I grew up not even aware of it, not seeing it and not seeing the impact that it had on families. And so when I started learning this stuff, I wanted to learn more and more. And I, I really, I became an African studies minor i studied abroad in south africa and i developed a deep mm-hmm. relationship with a black south african activist named Nonswakazi, gertrude Squentu. and gertrude was she's still a very close friend of mine she just visited for 2 weeks with her husband and her granddaughter just a few uh, just in january um we've been in touch i mean she came to my commitment ceremony she um gave my daughter her middle name and we we've been we speak almost weekly um but i lived with her family for a while when i was in college and after i graduated and i think living with her and seeing the ways that um that apartheid impacted her life and her opportunities uh, really helped me be develop the the internal conviction that that racism dehumanizes everybody who's touched by it and that we have to do what we can to, um, eradicate it from our lives and our relationships. And I think it's that relationship with Gertrude and her family that is my main, my main motivation. And so essentially it, it became an a, a, some, a big part of my, my life. And, um, I'm very close with my family. So to answer your question about my dad, I want right <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is a long way around there um, but yeah, but that's that's fascinating, I mean to hear ha- how you grew up and how you came to realize this is the issue, yeah, it's really fascinating how you came to this point on a personal level through your relationship with your friends, and now, yeah, now we came back to. My question about your dad. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: So <laughs> thanks. So my um my you know, I'm very close with my family and so there was no part of this process where I wanted to leave them behind. But what I was learning about racism through everything into question for me in, including like our choice to live in the suburbs where we get money from where we go on vacation in the summer you know we we vacation we go to my grandparents house in maine which is a house that could not have been purchased um if it, it, by any person of color when my grandparents bought it in I think they bought it in 1920 that it it was not land that was available to anybody except white people. And the only t- reason it was available to white people was because the native people who lived there had been forced out at uh, probably well before the 1920s. But nevertheless, the, the fact that we still go there and visit this, this cottage that my grandparents own is all connected to our whiteness. And, um, and so I just, in trying to figure out how, what to do with this and the overwhelming guilt that I felt, I wanted to talk about it with my family. And um, so my dad and I often talked about uh, about these topics, but we often ended um, at like a stalemate because my father insisted for the most part that we should be colorblind, that this is not a topic we should be talking about. Um, and then he also had a number of conservative ideas about... Um you know my I think my college was had made a decision to uh essentially um, guarantee aid to anybody who needed it, and he thought that that was ridiculous that people should have to pay to go to college or take loans and i I basically said, well I think that idea I think that idea is racist i didn't even call him racist, but I said that's just racist and from that point forward, it was like I had just cut off. The conversation. And I see, yeah. he, didn't, he didn't want to talk. It was like I'd crossed the line. He didn't want to talk to me about it anymore um, because he felt, I think, and, and probably rightfully, that I wasn't playing fair. Um, and so a couple of years later, I went back to him and I said, Look, I miss talking with you about this stuff and I want to hear from you. And so uh, let's just make an agreement that I won't call you racist. <laughs> And anytime you have questions about it, just know that I don't always have the answer, Um, but I would like to be in inquiry with you. I would like to know Mm. what questions you have. And he asked me a really interesting question about um, basically if black people are not biologically – Superior to all other people. Why are there so many black people in the NBA? You know, and and I said, you know, that's a great question, and I honestly I don't <laughs> know the answer. But let's talk about what we we both know and see what we can figure out because we know that race is not biological. So let's start from that premise and then talk about it. And we've had fascinating conversations. I feel like my dad and I are both in a totally different place today. And my capacity to talk about race with white people in whatever stage of development they're in is directly connected to his willingness to engage with me over time. And then the permission that he's given me to talk about our relationship publicly in the way that I'm doing right now, um, which I couldn't do if that was going to hurt our relationship Or maybe I could do it and it would hurt our relationship, but you know, that, that would put me in a whole different position, but he's been willing, he said, you know, you can really talk about our family anytime, as long as you're telling the truth, uh, you know, we are on a journey that a lot of other people should be on or are on. And if it can help people learn, then I, I, you know, I want to give them the chance to learn. Um, the one thing that we, Mm -hmm. we always struggled with, and I, I love to go back to him today, is I used to have a belief, and a lot of people still promote this idea, that basically if you're white, then you're racist because you benefit from a racist society. And I used to tell my dad this, and I would say, I'm not calling you racist. I'm just saying I'm racist because I benefit from living in a racist society. And he would say, Allie, please, even just the fact that you would say that about yourself is enough evidence that you're not racist. You know, and he just, he could not get his mind around this. And he, he did not like the idea that I was calling myself racist. And I think, you know, at a certain point, these conversations are semantic he was understanding the term racist differently from the way that I was using it. And there really wasn't much sense in continuing to hit him over the head with this concept that some people really buy into. I think if it works for you, it can be a useful way of understanding how racism works in our society. But if it doesn't work for you, I think it's useful to just move on with the learning, to continue to learn how racism has impacted our society and our lives and what we can do about it, and not worry so much about who is racist and who is not racist based on the system and the structure. Um, because I feel like sometimes we let that stuff uh, trip us up and then we don't actually get to the real work of undoing the system itself, That w- really, which is what we're here to do.
1: So, so what made the difference when you first talked with your dad He was, you think like the term, really the term, whether to use a term make the difference? Because at at the very beginning, when you started the conversation, you started, I mean, you started to call him racist or his words racist. But later on, you realize that it's not helpful just to, you know, point to somebody and call this person racist without really offering the opportunities of engagement, of inquiring together. I mean, what do you think is the big difference here?
0: Well, I mean, part of it is that time was changing. And so we started these conversations when Bill Clinton was president. And then we continued to have them through <laughs> George Bush and then through Barack Obama. I mean, there, you know, there were so the the times were really changing and that was having an impact mm-hmm. on him um but also uh i was learning how to talk to white people i think white people don't want to be lectured by another white person certainly don't want to be called names mm-hmm. by another white person i learned to really be able to relate into him and and one of the things i've learned about talking to white people is that um often if they annoy me or they irritate me it's because they remind me of a stage of identity development that i've been through myself and so if I can recognize that and then, and then um, kind of have more compassion for that part of myself, I can have more compassion for that part of that person. And my goal is to get white people to take the next step for them. I think I used to just want everybody to be woke. or, I mean, I also, I felt really guilty about being white. So for a while in my twenties, I just wanted every white person I came into contact with to feel guilty. I mean, I really, I actually thought that was the point. Like that's, that seems to be what happens when we have these conversations. So I guess that's the point point. I'll just make everybody feel guilty. And so I think it was, it was really powerful both to, to read works by bell hooks and Janet Helms, uh, who are both black feminists who, um, Janet Holmes is a psychologist, um, and they write about the beloved community. They write about positive racial identity development and, and realizing, oh, really, the goal isn't to make people feel badly. The goal is to help people realize that they can use their whiteness to work against racism. Um, another quote that really influenced me was from James Baldwin, who said essentially that uh, racism is not a people of color problem. Racism is a white person problem. And it's not going to change unless white people do something about it. And that made me really invested in figuring out what it is that I can do. And I think a big part of what I can do is help continue to move white people forward. There was a time with my dad when um, I went over to his house and I I was telling him, you know, we had been having this conversation about colorblindness and why it's problematic. And I went to a conference where the facilitator seem to have a really good explanation about why colorblindness is not helpful. So I wanted to tell my dad I thought it would be helpful. And I was telling him you know, a white woman said that she's colorblind and here's what the person of color facilitating said. They essentially said, first of all, if you if you are Colorblind then you can't really see me because my racial background is part of who I am, but also you can't stand with me and work against racism because you can't see racism if you're being colorblind you also can't see your your bias the bias that you have we know most of us have bias um, and and our work is to work is to is to make the unconscious bias that we carry conscious so that we don't let it impact us when we're moving around in the world, grading people, hiring people, firing people, um, learning from people. Um, So colorblindness doesn't help with any of that. So I was telling my dad this because I thought it was a really valuable explanation. And he got really hostile about it. You know, he was he was upset. And he said, you know, why would you even uh, talk at a thing like that. I mean, don't, doesn't this lady know it's referring to the participant. Doesn't she know that they're always going to attack us? You should just, if you go to a thing on race, you should just stay quiet. You shouldn't say anything. And I was distraught. I was, I was really upset about this. And I called my sister to tell her what my father had said. And she said, yeah, it sounds like dad is reintegrating and reintegrating is it's basically a stage of identity development and she nailed it and she recognized it she said it sounds like he's reintegrating And, and basically reintegration is the stage that white people go through when it becomes too painful or kind of emotionally difficult or you know there's too much fragility for them to continue to learn about racism and so they start to turn what was kind of guilt and sadness and vulnerability around racism into hostility and anger. And when people reintegrate, they become kind of hostile to people of color and, to, and sometimes they might ridicule white people who are trying to be anti-racist. Um, and so she could recognize that he was in this stage. And usually when white people are in this stage, what they need is support because they're, they're basically trying not to feel the vulnerability that comes with some of the sadness of realizing, God, I've benefited from this system over time. And they'd rather just kind of put up a wall and say, no, I don't see it. If people of color are having a hard time, it's because there's something wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with me. Um, and I've done nothing wrong. Uh, and I think well, that's true. I mean, I think, you know, you, we live in this system. We live in this country where a lot of white people don't have to do anything wrong in order to benefit from racism. Um, And so it is a really confusing concept. And so my goal with white people is to help them take the next step in their development with my dad to recognize he was reintegration. And then to recognize what that means is that he doesn't need more combative argument. He needs support. He needs support. And he needs, you know, he needs to know I'm not going to judge him um, so that he can continue on his journey. And, um, and, and my goal, in addition to having people take their own next step is really not to leave white people in the reintegration stage because, you know, I work with teachers. And so if they are, if they enter the reintegration stage during our work together, because it's too much, too fast, then I know on Monday, they're not going to take that out, their hostility and anger out on white kids. They're going to take it out on kids of color they're going to feel insecure and unstable and unsure of themselves, and while I think that can be valuable to the learning process as white people learn about racism is not a valuable thing for for white teachers to bring into the classroom during the school year and so the other thing that I really work to do is make sure that um that teachers are not reintegrating uh when they when they leave me in either my workshop or my conversation with them, and that's all stuff that I learned. Through my the my intimate work with my dad,
1: yeah, I mean that's very interesting, and that also makes the very a very smooth transition to the type of work. I mean, just as you mentioned just now, um, your work with the teachers. So how you them. Um, neutrin- of how you work with them to help them develop a positive racial identity, mm-hmm. and I think that's so meaningful. And this is the conversation that should be happening in many, many schools in this country or in the world. But yes, yeah, so I, 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 I want you to. Uh, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the. Um, the inquiry group you organized with the teachers and how, from what you told us just now, we know how, you know, this uh, identity development took place uh, in your family, in you and in your conversation with your dad. Like your dad's, Racial identity development: How the inquiry group you worked with um, the teachers in the group develop their identity? What kind of questions they ask? How is these questions related to um, the work they do with uh, their students? Well, this book
0: is based on the work uh, uh, that I did with mm-hmm. three different identity, uh, excuse me, inquiry groups, and so inquiry is really. A um, a strategy for for engaging over a longer period of time with questions about race and racism. I find that in general, first of all, when I tell people I study race questions, they are fascinated and they always have questions of their own. You know, so uh, an old friend of mine, um, he is an old friend of mine. I knew him twenty years ago, but he's also older than me. He's probably about. He's probably about. In his 70s now, and I remember him saying, "Well, I play softball with some, some folks, and this thing came up, and and you know, it's like I, I can't go anywhere and tell people I study race questions without having people share their own, um, and when, and I think this is true in general that people carry race questions with them, but they don't really know what to do with them or how to ask them, often because they're afraid they'll seem racist just for not already knowing the answers, and." um and so so, for this group uh, there were three different groups there was a there was a very traditional inquiry group that I worked with in um an independent school and this was a fascinating project because there were twenty five teachers involved in the inquiry group and they were divided oh that's a yeah, lot yeah it was 25 but they were divided into four smaller groups and so we would do uh-huh. professional development around race and education on a regular basis with the whole group of 25 um but then they would meet with their smaller groups to refine their questions and 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 support one another and um what was powerful about that was that after 2 years in that in in those inquiry groups they really shifted the entire culture of their school because they were 25 teachers out of about a hundred. And they were from all different, um, divisions in the school and all different departments. And they having 25 people who really engaged with questions of race and education over two years shifted, just shifted all the assumptions in the conversation because of course they were also talking about it with their colleagues. Um, and what I really valued about it was that they were able to sit with a question And let it develop, Uh, so I can talk more about that. But it's not about just trying to answer the question. And in fact, I think with race questions, if you just answer the question right away, it's not an inquiry question. It's more, you know, if it's a question that Google can can answer for you, that that's not inquiry. Um, Inquiry is is recognizing that if I ask a question, um, like why are why don't why don't more Black and Latino and uh, students um, access my AP English class? My AP English class is almost all white and Asian. Uh-huh. You know, that that's it. Like, uh-huh. if you right. come up with a quick answer for that question, then then you probably, you, first of all, you haven't engaged in an inquiry, but it's also probably wrong because often you might reach for, for answers that are based in stereotype or myths about, you know, a lot of schools have myths about, well, the, the kids of color, the black and Latino students who are here are all here on scholarship, but they don't really care about the academics. That is not true. But you hear from teachers that that's, um, that that is a, you know, you hear that myth from teachers, you also hear from students that people believe that about them. <laughs> but also that that's not true about them. um oh, You know, and, and, I, to me, that's a, that's an inquiry question. You could spend two years thinking about what am I teaching? What's the content? What's the curriculum? How am I communicating it? How am I teaching it? Um, and then also interviewing alumni and uh, interviewing students in terms of their experience of the class and also looking at the pipeline and how you get to AP English because often, you know, kids aren't going to take AP English if it means they're going to be isolated from others in their in their racial peer group is it's hard to be racially isolated to be the only one of your group in a high level class. And it's not, it's often the benefits, the academic benefits don't outweigh the social um, sanction that you might, and there's the loneliness that you might experience. And so there's just a lot that goes right. into that question and it's worth sitting with it for two years to really transform your understanding of the situation so you can fix it. Um, so that was one of the inquiry groups. The other two, one was with a, an urban, um, school district, public school district and teachers from anywhere in the district could join. And I ran that group with um, two two colleagues from uh, my graduate school and and um, we met on a monthly basis and they came up with their own inquiry. And then I also participated in an inquiry group that was pre-existing in a suburban public school district. So there were three different groups, three different inquiry groups where we um, spent in two... Uh, where we spent a a year or two years uh, asking questions about racism and classroom practice.
1: So what is your role um, in the three inquiry groups? Like, uh, are you facilitating, were you facilitating the groups? Uh, Uh,
0: In two of them, I facilitated them. And in one, I was just a participant. mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that... I came to see as critical to these groups was that there was constant input. And so it wasn't like teachers just sat around and asked questions. We also were constantly introducing them to new, to different concepts like stereotype threat, like racial microaggressions, like um, racial identity development, and giving them a- examples of the ways that students report experiencing racism in school, um, the kinds of things that parents of color are concerned about in school. Um, because it's hard to just sit around with your question. I mean, so a, a lot of times teachers didn't know what to start asking about, or they would just start randomly asking questions. And then as we introduced more content, they would, um, their questions would evolve. Um, and that was really important because we don't know what we don't know. And that's true of most things, but it's particularly true with regard to white people and race. Um, but, and, you know, again, I mean, this wasn't just for white people. These were multiracial groups. And, um, we often had, so all the, all the teachers in my book are white, but they were a part of multiracial inquiry groups. And I would say, you know, the teachers of color also evolved in their thinking, um, in within the context of these groups. We had one black math teacher who had always wanted to be an engineer, and he suddenly realized, as we were studying stereotype threat, what an impact that had had on his own inability to pass the tests that were required to become an engineer. I mean, he is a math teacher. He teaches extremely high-level math. He knows the material. He passes the practice tests for engineering. He he's there, it's, it's not about his competence, but he'd never been able to actually pass the test for engineering um, when it was official and, and learning about stereotypes it was this, this big aha for him in his life. So uh-huh. yeah. you know, it's, not, um, it's not just white people yeah. who yeah. were learning from this process. Mm-hmm. We were all, mm-hmm. but the other thing, so, the other thing that happened, sorry, Pingfei. that just uh,
1: the oh, other yeah, thing go that ahead. happens
0: with an inquiry group is that in general, school cultures, I mean, 85% of the teachers in the US are white. And so for the right. most part, school culture is is really shaped by white culture. And a big part of white culture or white cultural style is, it is color blindness, color muteness, not talking about race, not noticing it and not factoring it into conversations. And so um, most school cultures are, are colorblind cultures and people don't talk about race and racism. So even if the teachers of color might have had more personal racial competency and ability to talk about race. It wasn't something that was happening in mainstream conversations within the schools. And so taking part in inquiry groups with other teachers at their school meant that they were able to really interrupt the culture of colorblindness and, um, and shift that so that, um, so that moving forward, if race needed to be talked about it would just come up and people would bring it up and they talk about it and so that's another value of inquiry groups is that meeting regularly over time shifts the norms for the group
1: well from what you just said i have um i have several follow-up qu- follow-up questions i want to ask but let me first start with this issue of vulnerability cuz um uh, when you talk about this um stage in your father's racial identity development, re, reintegration, is that yes. the stage? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I just saw a lot of um, vulnerability, the vulnerable aspect of people's um, inquiry, like when people start to inquire about race and racism. Uh, how I mean and I assume these type of like vulnerable moments you probably would see them a lot in your work with those teachers. Like have you I mean I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how did you have you seen them uh, and how do how did you address like those vulnerable moments?
0: That's a really great question. And I think that on a personal level, I think people know that they can trust me um, because I often share my own stories of mistakes that I've made and things that I've learned by, um, by being, uh, you know, just kind of <laughs> the, the common patterns And pitfalls that white people face in this practice. Just this morning, I was talking to a white teacher who was having conflict with a black colleague who felt really undermined by her. And so in response, I shared a story of a time when I had a black colleague who I had been undermining in an unconscious way and the conversations we had and the way that it almost ruined our relationship until I was able to see what he was saying and I was really able to say, you know, moving forward, I will, I want to be conscious of my own internalized superiority. Um, And I'm going to write that down on all of the designs for the workshops we lead so that I can remember it. I'm going to remember that, you know more about racism than I do because you've spent 64 years as a black man and I have never been a person of color. (laughs) Um, And I'm I'm really just gonna um, trust you and, and, and follow your lead because even though there's a lot that I know and a lot I contribute, I am not a person of color and we are talking about racism. Um, And so I shared this story with her in order to, to really um, support her and let her know that I have made for all the white teachers I've worked with, I've made most of the mistakes that they're making or some kind of mistake. And so I really try to relate to them um By sharing the mistakes i've made, and that 's also how i learn i I really you know i I tend to um, I need white people who can be allies to me who can help me who can support me when I make mistakes. Um, and I don't want people to let me off the hook. You know, I, I do have friends who will say, oh, you know, like what my dad said. Oh, Ally, you didn't do anything wrong. Just the fact that you hold yourself to such a high standard is evidence that you, you could never do anything wrong. And those people are my sometimes they're my friends, but they're not my allies because my allies have the same goal for racial justice that I have. They They're going to hold me to a high standard. But they're also they're also not going to shame me or be like why why would you do something like that you know to respect people of color they're gonna you know they're gonna <laughs> they're gonna you know appreciate my intention they're gonna also they're gonna relate in they might share stories of mistakes that they've made um, and they're gonna also help me strategize how to how to repair the the um, relationship and um, how to do it differently in the future and look at whatever what. Unconscious processing might have been informing what was going on. Um, And so I need allies to support me in in that work. And that's what I try to do for teachers on a personal level. Um, And as a professional, there were moments when this actually felt a little bit manipulative. Because here I am sharing, in, in the interview, I'm sharing things I've done wrong. And then they mm-hmm. are in turn vulnerable with me and share things they've done wrong. But as a researcher, I have the ability to report what they say and not what I say. And um, and so this was kind of a, an ethical dilemma for me. And at a certain point, somebody, uh, I, in, I was um, at a conference sharing some of my data, and somebody said to me, you know, your research makes the teachers sound racist. It, it makes them sound bad. And for me oh, yeah, uh-huh. for me as a research uh-huh. as a uh, excuse me as a teacher, when I listen to you talk about your research, I don't trust you as a researcher because I'm a teacher. And so I take the side of the teacher. And you're not presenting it in a balanced enough way to um to demonstrate that like that they should be in trusting relationship with you. And so I had to think of structural ways to shift that so that I was both being vulnerable in my book about myself and my personal life which mm-hmm. is partly why I write myself into it but also I ended up creating space in the back where the teachers each teacher that was in my study uh was able to read everything I had written about them before I published the book and then they wrote a two page they each wrote a two page response to their chapter or to the, excuse me, um, to the pieces that were written about them. And, um, and those are included so that the teacher's voices are in the book as well. And this is important because we didn't always agree on stuff. So I didn't want to create one uniform narrative that suggested that we, uh, there was total, um, alignment in the way we interpreted the situations because a teacher who's in the classroom, who's, you know, working with 24 students and they have a curriculum and a, and a, supervisor and parents that they're accountable to um, and only so many hours in a day, they're going to see every conflict, every situation really differently than a researcher who just drops in every few weeks and is observing from afar. And I think both perspectives are valuable, particularly in terms of what people can learn from, from being a fly on the wall and seeing a classroom from an outsider's perspective. Um, but I think it's valuable to hear both voices. And so I think getting the teachers trust required that I both relate to them on a personal level but then as a professional um take very seriously the job of making sure their voices were represented and that um that I wasn't painting them to be a particular kind of way because I want teachers to pick up this text and read it and find value in it, and if they pick it up and think, "Oh, this researcher just is teacher bashing um, then they're not actually mm-hmm. going to learn from it and so um that ultimately all of my work is directed towards white people learning more about how to how to step up and be anti racist to work to work for anti racism or for racial justice um and so I I try to frame everything I do and write in a way that people will be receptive to. If it if it worked to just like yell at people and hit them over the head with some very, you know, with like uh
1: WEB Du Bois like and like Yeah, or whoever, yeah. you know, James yeah.
0: Baldwin and yeah. just like um to just uh, I mean those are authors that I uh, that I love, but it it doesn't work to just like you know, say like, go watch 13th and you're a racist, you know, if if that worked, I think I would do that more. Um, but my intention is to have people learn and shift and change. And I think that requires a very particular pedagogical approach, both in my interactions with people and in the, in my writing.
1: Well, I think you share some very interesting thoughts about how you present your work also, because, um, from what you just said i heard you are, were taking this multiple roles uh in this process i mean for sure you are a very rigorous researcher but also you present your work uh in front of the teachers and you try to talk with them you try to work with them uh, and i my impression is that the, the book is not written for your peer researchers. I mean, you. I mean, you. You are not direct, You are not specifically talking to your academic colleagues in the book. I don't know if my impression is right or Well,
0: no. yeah, I I think it is right in terms of you know, it's important for researchers to consider the position of power that they're in when they're doing this. Yeah, right. But, but I, it, sure. to address the first part of what you said, I really, for the most part, my work is directed at teachers, and I, this was a commitment that I made when I graduated from my doctoral mm-hmm. program that I I could see the road where I get a tenure track position and I write from I write journal articles. Um, And I could tell that that was not what I wanted to do, that I would be required to create materials that really don't shift the way things happen in schools. And I feel really, really clear that we know a lot of what we need to know already, that the research on racism in education is actually abundant and that we know what we need to know, but that it's Mm -hmm. not accessible to teachers And it's really, it's written for researchers, by researchers, and it's not, we can't, not only, it's hard to understand, it's hard to know what does this mean for my day-to-day practice. And so um, that's why all the work that I've done since I graduated about 10 years ago has been directed at uh, creating creating resources, articles, um, books, and things like that, that would be directly applicable to teachers who are in the classroom.
1: So so yeah, I mean, I've i just learned a lot from what you talk just now about um, how we can really just um, do research with teachers and for teachers, and we can um, write a book and to uh, really um, make the materials accessible for the teachers and. And I, you know, we are approaching the end of our podcast interview, but I have one more question that I really would love to talk with you, uh, which is about, you know, a lot of the examples you gave in the book are the interactions between white teachers and black students. So they they really make a lot of sense to me. They are very helpful. But I also want to ask you to share your thoughts about teachers and maybe even, you know, other adult members of the community um, working with other non-white students like, you know, Asian-Americans, Native Americans. Um, And I don't know to what degree we can transfer the insights about race to discuss say ethnicities such as the teacher's interaction with Hispanic students um do you want to talk a little yeah. bit more about that
0: i in the book i i note that um this is a very black and white uh text partly because i'm in a philadelphia context um which is a it's not an entirely black and white city but a lot of the schools and teachers that i was working with were pretty black and white Um, But there were also classrooms in which there were a number of particularly Latino and Asian American students who often were under the radar for teachers in terms of the race questions that they were asking. It was like black students have a race. And as long as there's no problem, Latino and Asian students kind of don't. Um, and I really encourage teachers not to overlook Asian and Latino students, because what often happens is that I think that if students can assimilate in K through 12, they will. Um, and if they can, if, if parts of who they are racially or culturally, um, mark them as different and, and, you know, it's one thing like they can't obviously change their skin color, but if they can change cultural Aspects of their identity, like language or accent or um, the foods that they bring to school or other tradition, traditional um, styles that that, you know, they could change them in order to fit in more with a predominantly white school. I think they often will. And I think they do so to the detriment of their own racial and cultural identity, as well as their own self-esteem and their connection to their family and to really, you know, our connections to our families and our cultures are some of, was like one of the greatest resources that any of us has. And um, so it's, it's a very dangerous thing that happens. And I think that it can happen under the radar of teachers because I think we're often unaware of what a strong assimilative pull there is in the United States. It's different in Canada and Canada has its own problems, but for the most part you can move to Canada and be Canadian Indian or Canadian Chinese or Canadian or Af- Afro Canadian, right? And, and, yeah. and maintain.
1: Yeah, you feel that very strongly when, like, even the moment you step into there yes, exactly. Yes. And so it's much more of a of a, an
0: integrationist um, multiculturalism, whereas the U.S. is very assimilationist, and this goes back to our history, um, where there was a time when people went to court. There are 52 racial prerequisite cases on record where people went to court Syrian people and um, Chinese people and Japanese people and Native Americans and went to court basically to say, I need you to dis- to establish that I'm white. Because if I'm white, then I will be able to naturalize as a US citizen. And this was at a time when naturalization was tied to land ownership so people couldn't own land if they weren't naturalized but they couldn't naturalize if they weren't white and so right so there there is a long history yeah and there were even stories of of people saying look i you know i i became christian i gave up my traditional foods i eat hot dogs now my kids play baseball we speak english what else do you want from me And what we see in this history is this just incredible loss of culture and language and food and difference, which is like the biodiversity of the human race And the U.S., the project of the U.S., the racial project is just to wipe that out. And so and that's still happening in schools where people really where kids. If they can hide who they are, they will. And part of our job as teachers is to create classrooms where kids can be their full selves. Um, I don't often, I, I, I have recently, um, been working with some schools. Uh, I was recently invited to, um, Gonzaga university by the director of tribal relations there. And she asked me to come speak to their education mm-hmm. program because, um, they provide programs for teachers who teach native children. And I said, I really don't know about teaching native mm. children. And she said, almost all the teachers that we're talking to are white people and we can teach them about teaching native children, but they need to understand that they are white first. They need to understand their background. And, and, and so we need you to come and talk about whiteness. It's okay that you don't know about native, native children. And so that's a collaboration (laughs) that I've been engaged in over the last many years, maybe three years. Um, and actually just this weekend, I was on the, um, Rosebud Sioux Reservation in South Dakota with the St. Francis Indian school. And I went with the understanding that I was going to be working with mostly white teachers. And I ended up working with native teachers, but the message was, was still resonant for people, um, which was uh, that essentially, you know, if we want to, I think that the framework is a little different in indigenous communities, that it's not as much about anti-racism as it is about anti-colonialism. But colonialism in the right. U.S. essentially, edu- the education program under colonialism was about um, essentially killing the Indian to save the man. And I think that's what John Carlyle said with the Carlyle School. Um, and the goal was to just take out any any native culture and to, and to basically what they would say is civilized people. And so this was a community that wants to bring back The culture and the language and support kids to decolonize their education and to really connect them to the tradition and the language that could sustain them and really could sustain all of us. I mean, it's a it's a it's a tradition. It's a way of being that could sustain the earth in ways that Western Western styles cannot. but, but right. what they struggle with is that so many of the elders in the community don't even know the language because they were sent to boarding schools where they were beaten if they spoke it. And so, so much of it is lost. And so there's both the, I think part of the work in with, with all of us is to recognize the, the history in the U S of taking people's language and cultural way. And then the importance of figuring of, of supporting kids, to embrace who they are, to embrace their families, and maybe even to embrace history and language that they don't have access to anymore, um, it, but to, to be proud of it and not to accept the shaming um, that comes with an assimilationist society that insists that everybody have English-speaking, Christian, white cultural ways of being.
1: Right. I mean, thank you so much for sharing it. I have to confess that this is to some degree a slightly selfish question because I I myself am also raising an mm-hmm. Asian American young kid and I I always feel of this like I always feel this anxiety about, you know, how shall I help and support my kids navigate this very racialized society. Yeah. Yeah. And these are just some real needs from the not only me, myself, but also from my parents and my teachers. And I'm just so glad that we have people who are really concerned about this, who really take their time to think through this. Well, it comes. really, I, I totally agree. It is
0: real. They are real needs. And I look forward, honestly, to being an ongoing inquiry with you about this, because I think that's what it is. It's not a question we're going to be able to answer instantly, um, but it is one worth continuing to inquire about as we as we raise our kids, as we train teachers, and as we continue to produce research that will hopefully help us answer these questions.
1: Yeah, and, and from talking with you, um, the idea of inquiry, you just uh, uh, demonstrate. It's very interesting and very meaningful. It's a, it's not to get a yeah. quick answer about something. Is this um journey? This journey that you will take on with your family members, with people around you, with your allies, and with your community members. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and. Uh before we wrap up the podcast, I would like to ask ask you to give us some uh, uh hint about what you are working on right now and what we can expect from you in the coming sure. years.
0: Um the well, I since I published Raising Race Questions, I've been working with a multiracial team with Dr. Eddie Moore Jr. and Dr. Marguerite Peene Parks. We've created two edited books. One is called Everyday White People Confront Racial and Social Injustice. This is 15 stories of white Wonderful. people who work mm-hmm. against racism. And the goal is to create role models for white people um, so that they can know what, what it would what it look like to take an anti-racist path. We also produce, uh, published the guide for white women who teach black boys, which has over 80 contributors. And again, the goal is to, you know, to create a book that teachers can pick up and really use on a daily basis. All of the chapters are five pages long at a maximum. They have exercises for teachers to do as well as stories. It's full of stories. And we have video footage, um, hours of video footage that's accessible in the back of the book. Um, right now we're working on a book called Teaching Brilliant and Beautiful Black Girls, again, with a multiracial team of editors. It'll be essentially the companion guide to the guide for white women who teach black boys. And I also created an article. I, I wrote an article with a, a multiracial team of women. Um, it's, in a, it's actually a book chapter in the book called uh, White Women's Work. And it's about, um, I think it's called White Culture in Relief. And it's about how white culture shows up in schools. But what what we were finding is that it's hard, it's hard to just say what white culture is, because so we have one author who's Korean American, one author who's Jamaican American, one author who's African American, and another author who's Puerto Rican and Ecuadorian American. And white culture looked different to each of us based on our racial background, but also where we grew up, and how we grew up. And but it's a book that really tries to explain what white culture, uh, it's a chapter that is, explains what white culture looks like from the perspective of multiple different people. And then I also write from my own perspective as a white person who grew up in a middle class suburb. Um, and that the, the writing has been really exciting. I, I find it very powerful to write and edit in multiracial teams because I, I come face to face with the clarity that I don't, I cannot have all the answers by myself as a white person, but I also really believe that I have something to contribute to the answers. And I also have something to contribute in terms of helping make sure that the books are going to be readable to, to white teachers. Um, and then finally of my own, I'm trying to work on a book that will be about white people working with other white people uh, and to become anti-racist. And that's kind of just in the earliest stages right now.
1: Wow. Wonderful. So it sounds like maybe after you finish this book, we will have you uh, to join us, We will have you join us again. I love that idea. Let's book. do it. So thank you so much for taking your time to join us today, Ali. And we really enjoy all the um, insights and all the stories you share with us.